Um, so we're going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians, um, chapter 1, verses 2 to 10. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Acacia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Uh, once again, welcome to public meetings. If you've not met me, my name is Paddy. I'm one of the staff workers here, and uh, we're going to spend together the next uh, half an hour or so just uh, looking at that particular passage. The public meetings team this week asked me to do a talk on hashtag get hyped for mission. And so you'll notice there on the outline, if you've got a copy in front of you, that the title of the talk today is hashtag get hyped. So I thought, well, how do I hype up the EU for three weeks of mission? Well, you know, there's apparently a presidential election going on. So I thought loons from the ceiling, eight minutes of fireworks, very sort of stirring speeches from a whole lot of people. I thought, no, actually, we won't do any of that. We've already spent the festival budget on other things. Uh, what I thought we'd do is we'd actually read the word of God and we'd, in a very appropriate sort of spiritual sense, actually get hyped from the Word of God. So I'm going to do that now. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Shall I? Father God, we thank you for your Word. We ask, please, that you would speak to us now, that you would speak through it, that you would convict us of your Gospel. Father, that that would be a great encouragement for us in these coming three weeks and for the rest of our life, that we would be on mission for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. One more thing that we just forgot to do in that little um, interview was, on Monday of next week is an e-summit running between 4 and 6 o'clock and the e-summit is also launching the festival. E-summits are a great opportunity if you're interested in receiving more training and encouragement in evangelism. They run three or four times a semester but the one particularly is open to anybody. You're all welcome to come between 4 and 6. A great chance to be encouraged in your evangelism. We're looking particularly at training about how you sort of talk to your friends about Jesus if they've come to one of the gospel opportunities and how you follow them up after that gospel opportunity for the rest of the semester. So a great thing to do. So the question I want to ask today is, what is your life's goal? Where are you heading? Perhaps your mission in life is security and comfort. Perhaps that's why you're at university. You've come to uni to try and obtain a degree which legitimizes the employment that you hope to have in the future, which hopefully will gain you some form of security and comfort. Put a roof over your head, food to eat, those sorts of things. Perhaps your goal in life is pleasure, enjoyment, the fulfillment of those sorts of things. Maybe it's just the drive to achieve, to be successful, and to be recognized 
in your family, in your peer group, or among the wider society in doing so? What about some of the ones we looked at last week in public meetings flowing out of annual conference? Can anyone remember the four things that we looked at? What were the four things that we looked at that we sort of search after, that we crave for, getting the hint, that we're longing for and that we dream of? Authenticity was the first one. We search for authenticity. The second one, we crave for impact. The third one, we long for connectedness. The fourth one, dream of happiness. And the fifth one, if you've got the outline or you've got your Encon book, anyone still carry around your Encon book, by the way? Anyone got it with them in their bag? Oh, well, there was a couple at uh, public meeting yesterday. Uh, the fifth one was the promise of excitement. What do we do with these things? These sort of cravings, these longings, these desires, the aspirations that we have, are they helpful, unhelpful? Are they sinful? Are they bad? Are they wrong? Are they right? I want to suggest to you consistently what we've been looking at coming out of annual conference and last week, all of these things are just part of what it means to be human. They're not particularly Christian things. They're not particularly non-Christian things. They're just what it means to be human. I think the more difficult question that we have to ask ourselves is how do we know if they're focused or orientated in a helpful, appropriate or right way? So what determines where I should, where I should search for authenticity? What does achieving security and comfort in this world actually look like? What framework would, should we use in determining these things? And I suspect that as you're starting to realise being in a university environment, that you and your peers are starting to ask these questions. Whether or not it's obviously, and it may be for some of you in some of your tutorial groups, but I suspect it's probably in your own personal development as an individual. These are some of the questions that you're starting to ask as you're starting to look into the future and map out where you think your life is going. Ultimately though, all of these things come down to an identity question. Seeking to answer this question, who am I? What identity am I shaping for myself? And how is it that others see me as I relate to them? So if this is sort of who we are, I guess the question that we ought to ask is what's stopping me from getting there? What's stopping you from achieving the identity you're trying to form for yourself? Perhaps you just need more time. You say, look, I'm only in my late teens, early 20s. Come back to me when I'm 25 or 30 and I've actually worked out what life is all about. That strikes me as a bit unusual. I think some of you know what life's all about and you think you've already got the answers to life. So I think for some of you, it's not I need more time. Perhaps it's that you need more life experience. I just need to experience more of life. Perhaps you just sort of need to redefine or recalibrate who you're trying to be. You've sort of started out on this particular trajectory, but you've got to union and go, actually, I just, that's not really, I really want to sort of go in this direction and... Maybe what you're doing is you're sort of not entirely sure that what you're seeking to become is what's actually best for you. And that flows out of, doesn't it, the experiences that we have along the way. Well, today, as we look at this particular passage in 1 Thessalonians, we see that God's mission plan is deeply connected to individuals' identity. Notice here, right up front in verses 6 and 7, the Thessalonian believers take on a particular identity. Uh, read there with me in verses 6 and 7. Paul says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, the Thessalonians put on an identity, which is that they become imitators of the Lord and the apostles. They do it in the middle of much affliction. So they're resisting something in their context and they become an example to other believers. That's a particular identity that they put on. It's a new identity. 
It's one which is probably different from the surrounding identity that others would have. And it's clearly different from an identity that they used to have. So what was their previous identity? Paul actually articulates it for us down in verse 9. Where halfway through verse 9 he says, How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their previous identity had been one of serving idols to now serving God. Why might they have been worshipping idols? Perhaps it was just a cultural thing that everybody did. But I want to suggest to you that there was something deeper going on here because common to the general human experience is the desire to worship. The desire as a human being to give something its worth. To worship it. It is as we have been created. To recognise objects in the creation and ascribe worth to them. It's the desire to see the thing of beauty rightly recognised, respected and honoured. It's the desire to lift up the object of scorn and derision and give it an appropriate place of recognition and respect. It's the desire to express the emotion of love towards another in whom our heart and our wills are so inclined. The human problem is not that we desire these things and seek to give things their worth. I take it from the Bible, the human problem is that we fail to do it rightly or consistently. We fail to do it because of sin, what the Bible describes as sin. The disconnection between us and God relationally and the impact that that then has on the way in which we see the world and relate to others in the world. And so our desires and our affections are misguided. They are not as we were made. Picking up from that language Emmanuel conference. We, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, start giving greater worth to the things in the creation rather than the creator himself. And more often than not, one of the ways this works itself out very obviously is we keep serving ourselves rather than God. Ultimately thinking that we are the ones who deserve greater worth. See, idolatry at one level is not an empty thing, I want to suggest, at one level. And I think we know this to be true in our own experience. When we give something its worth, even if it's misguided, that actually does instill in us a certain intellectual and emotional response. So if you worship pleasure and you seek after the things that are pleasurable, it does actually, for a time, give you some pleasure. But idolatry at another level is deceptively empty. And it's deceptive because it always offers more and never quite delivers as we would expect. And so we get caught in this particular spiral of sort of offering more and more worship to a particular thing, but doing it in an ever increasingly misguided way. So we remain always unsatisfied. And all the while we see less and less of God and ascribing him the worship that he so rightly deserves. And so ultimately, idolatry is not an out there problem. It's an in here heart problem. Our desires and our affections are misguided and wrongly orientated. And we need someone to change our heart. And so the first question to ask ourselves is, is this the way we see ourselves? And are we prepared to ask for help? Are we prepared to come back to God and ask for help so that our hearts and wills might be rightly orientated towards him. 
I think sometimes we think that there are other people in the way of us achieving our vision. And maybe even other people getting in the way of us rightly doing what we ought to do. But perhaps the person getting in the way of achieving what it means to be truly human is not actually others. It's not people in the world. It's not other things. And actually, it might not even be God. Perhaps we're the ones getting in the way of achieving what it means to be truly human. Is that not what the heart of sin is? The worship of the self? And so how do we respond? Oh, I've got a couple of responses. The first is I think sometimes we try a heck of a lot harder. We might recognize that we don't give God his worth. And so we say to God, look, give me some more opportunities. I'll prove to you that I can do it. I'll prove to you I can worship you rightly. We try and master those desires ourselves. Sometimes I think the second response is we just give up and check out. It's all just hopeless. It's, it's all meaningless. Why bother? Let's just try and escape reality. And the third response, and I see this probably more obviously, and you might see this in your friends, we try and fight against God. We get angry with Him. We blame Him. God, why did you make me like this? You're the reason why I can't achieve what you so earnestly desire for me. We tell Him it's just not fair. Do you have friends like that? When they hear that you're a Christian, they're very angry with God. There may be other responses, but of these three, none of them are what God actually desires. They're just another expression of willful rebellion and rejection against him. See, God's desire and God's mission is to come to us in the person of Jesus and say to us, you are intimately known. You are unbearably and irresistibly attractive. You are deeply loved. You are unconditionally accepted. And you are of eternal significance. Oh, that that would be the promise that another human being might make to us if we desire to be in a relationship with them. A boyfriend or a girlfriend, perhaps a future spouse. Surely if someone came to us and made those promises to us and could deliver on us, that would be a keeper, wouldn't it? And yet in the person of the Lord Jesus, this is the offer that's made to all of humanity. You as an individual are intimately known by God. You are unbearably and irresistibly attractive. Look at the length that God has gone, in some senses, to pursue you. You are deeply loved. Unconditionally accepted. Knowing all of our flaws. And of eternal significance. Not just for the next couple of weeks, not just for the next few years, but for all eternity. Are these not desires, hopes and aspirations that we hope we would be able to rightly have of others and they of us? And yet God in Jesus perfectly fulfills all these. This is the offer that Jesus makes of a relationship with him. God is the only one who can perfectly deliver on it. If only we would see it, hear it, and accept it. See, God takes the initiative in sending Jesus, providing us the only exclusive means of establishing his justice in dealing with the sin and the rebellion and the broken relationship that stands between us and him. That broken relationship is deep and unavoidable. It is in our nature from the day we were born. 
And yet his son, Jesus, goes to and is resurrected. And this is the gospel that Paul is declaring here in verse 5. This is the gospel that comes to the Thessalonians. Notice how Paul describes its manner of coming in verse 5. He says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Although it is a word and heard and received as such, it comes with significant power. It comes with the full force, if you like, of the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. And it comes with deep conviction. Presumably in the context, I take it, it convicts the hearers, the Thessalonians, that the things they were worshipping, the idols of the day, were actually worthless and empty. And convicted them to turn back to worship Jesus and to worship him only. This particular word, this gospel, is a spiritual word. And yet it's delivered by human agents. It's not a big booming voice from heaven, although God could have chosen to speak like that. In this case, it comes through Paul and his apostolic followers when they arrive in the city of Thessalonica. They're only there for three Sundays and they speak this word to all who would hear. This word is more than a compelling speech with impressive and stirring rhetoric. It's a message of salvation. It is God's message his mission for humanity to turn back to Jesus. So why would God choose to act like this? Well, there are three ideas, I think, in this particular passage, which Paul raises regarding where the world is heading and where our focus should be in response to why God acts the way he does. Not surprisingly, they're sort of all interconnected. If you're taking notes, the three things are the return of Jesus, the salvation of God's people, and a time of God's wrath or anger. The return of Jesus, the salvation of God's people, and a time of God's wrath or anger. It is God's intention, friends, that the Lord Jesus will return. We see it here in verse 10. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is returning from his place beside the Father in heaven to come back one day. And all will see him in his resurrected glory face to face. Fully God, fully man. And it could be any day. When you woke up this morning, did you long for that and look forward to that? And say, the Lord might come back today. That's really exciting. Well, did you just sort of lie there with the rain absolutely hammering down and go, eh, another wet day at uni? Maybe the return of the Lord is not really an imminent thing in your thinking. And I think sometimes we sort of try and justify that, don't we? We say, well, look, Jesus, we know you're coming back, but can you wait until after festival? Look, there's lots of great gospel conversations I want to have, and we have spent a lot of time and resources trying to get this thing off the ground, seriously. So can we just wait until after festival, then you can come back? Maybe at the end of my degree, because I have invested a lot, if you come back, I won't have to pay back the fee help, so that's a good thing. But can I just finish the degree? Can I get to that stage of life? Jesus, can you come back after that? Jesus, I've got a good job. I've been here for a couple of years. I've been doing a little bit of witnessing and I still go to church. Can you just come back? Give me another few years. I've, I've got that promotion coming up. Jesus, I've met someone. We're getting married and we'd really like to have kids. So can you just wait a little bit longer, please? Jesus, I've got to my retirement. Fine, I've finally saved enough. I'm really looking forward to doing some traveling. I'll do some short-term mission work as well, I think. 
Can you wait until after that? Do you see how easy it is to sort of just rationally and justifiably just sort of move the return of Jesus just to the side, just until the next phase of our life? Friends, the return of the Lord is imminent. Are you looking for it? Are you hoping for it? Are you expecting it? Paul's second big idea here is regarding the salvation of God's people. God's intention is to save his people. Uh, You see it there, for example, in verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. God has actually chosen those whom he's going to save. You see it in the way in which God works through the scope of history. He chooses the nation of Israel, a small and insignificant people of literally no value or worth other than God loves them. He calls them out of slavery. He forms them into a nation and stands with them despite their rebellion on a number of different occasions. They get taken into exile and God brings them back. They get Jesus comes as the true Israelite and thanks be to God in his mercy, God now chooses to make that salvation known to all of his people even if they are not ethnically Jewish, of which I personally am very thankful and I suspect probably most of you are if you call yourself believers, if you're not ethnically Jewish. For up until that time, how else would we have been saved? God's desire here is to save his people. And on that day when the Lord returns, that will be fully realized. Which also leads us into the third of Paul's big ideas, which is God's intention to be just. And for God to enact justice, it will, re- it will require a time where his anger will be appropriately dealt out on those who still remain in opposition and rebellion to him. Saw it there in verse 10. Friends, this is the biblical reality. It is a hard word to hear, particularly if we have family or friends, classmates or neighbours who we know are not followers of Jesus. That is what will come upon them. We also know from the remainder of Scripture, as well as these three significant things, that God's desire is that all people are saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for many. Friends, this is God's desire. God's hope and God's plan is that the offer of salvation in Jesus would be made available to all peoples that they might take it up. And his motive is his great love for all of us, both individually and corporately as humanity. And so we read in Ephesians 2, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace, that free gift of Jesus, that we have been saved. Friends, these are the motives that lie behind the work of God in sending Jesus. That he would recreate us, raise us from the death that we are in in our sin and transgression, establish us with new identities, that we might look for the day when we will be with him forever, but live rightly in the here and now in light of the return of his son. And so when we rightly understand and commit to this new identity, as I know many of you today have in the past, we rightly expect that Jesus will reorder our desires. Because the gospel message that comes convicts people to radically change their life, giving up a particular way of life and taking on a very different one. It's a gospel message which, while a spoken word, has a spiritual dimension to us. It affects us deeply. 
It takes deep root not just in our intellect, but in our emotions and our will. It is a message that creates hope and brings trust. Which shows that each of us and all of humanity are deeply loved by God. By the God who made us and desires us to live lives which were as we were created to be, truly human. It is his message. And so it comes with his power. The power of his word which brought everything into being and also has the power to recreate our lifeless, dead, sinful hearts. It's a message of revival, bringing order from the chaos of our hearts, ordering the disordered desires that we have and reordering them that we may love God ourselves and others as he intended. It's a message which is deeply personal. For each of us, it will affect us differently, convicting us of our need to repent before God of various sins and idol worship that we may have partaken in. And it is a message which creates radical social change, the effect of which is seen and heard all around the world. See the impact that you see there from the Thessalonians in verse 7. They become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. Their conversion and their manner of life is then known around the whole of the province. Friends, this is God's mission through his message. God's expectation is that all humanity would live rightly. And in Jesus, we see the expectation for all of humanity. We see his death and resurrection as the means by which we can only become truly human. That we might die to the sin of idolatry, being united with him in his death and resurrection. Dying to the sin of worshipping creation rather than the creator. And ultimately dying to the worship of the self. What God expects and asks and requires is repentance and conversion. We see it there in verses, chapter 1 of verses 9 to 10. The Thessalonians turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his son. Turning and living appropriately, repentance and conversion. See, conversion, as Paul points out, involves more than just turning. It's more than just right, it's more than just sort of turning back to God and say, oh yeah, you are right, I'm wrong. What it actually also involves is living in that turned aspect of life committing to it and working at it with the help of his Holy Spirit living within us. This, friends, is God's desire for all people. So the question that we ought to always remind ourselves is, what does our conversion look like? If you confess the name of the Lord, I take it that you've repented. You've turned aside from one manner of life and are now seeking to follow the Lord. What does your converted life look like? Have you recognized that there are still areas in life where you're perhaps serving idols and not rightly worshiping the true and living God? Ask God for help that you might rightly worship him. Friends, this is God's mission. So what is the outcome for those who are believers? Well, for those of us who are believers, who trust in the Lord Jesus, I take it there's two things. The first thing actually is a bit unexpected. It's there in verse 10. Do you see what it is? Look in verse 10. The first expectation is that we will wait. Sounds a bit unusual, doesn't it, actually? Surely the first response for the believers is to go and do something. Well, Paul says, no, wait. The first expectation is that we would be waiting for Jesus to return. Now, it's not completely passive, as we will see. But first and foremost, we need to recognize that our vision for the future 
is a vision for the future. It is Jesus-centered, it's around his return, and we ought to expect it and be prepared for it. Which means all of our life, if it's in alignment with God's vision, is seeking the things of the future. And seeking to sometimes resist those things that are impulsive or immediate in the here and now. But secondly, we ought to be living lives that reflect that we have actually repented and converted. See there in verses 3 and 4, notice what Paul does. He says, we remember before our God and Father your work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. Our lives as Christians are now fundamentally driven by the hope that we have in the return of the Lord Jesus. It will be an ongoing change in our character that we live by faith because we don't yet see the Lord Jesus. And we rightly recognize that this will be a struggle for us in the midst of a world that doesn't know Jesus, that doesn't see the world as we see the world. Yet we live by faith looking for the return of the Lord. So to conclude, two things. Firstly, what ought to we expect? And secondly, how should we act? Firstly, I take it we should expect that God would do his work in saving people. Consistent with the way in which he's acted as an outworking of his character over thousands of years and the example that we see here within the Thessalonians. We then are to act as God's agents in speaking this word. It is his message. It is his powerful gospel. It is his work through his word. And yet he chooses us, his people, frail and weak as though we may feel, to speak this message of power. So next week, when you've created an opportunity where you're talking to your friend, or they ask you why you're wearing the hoodie, don't think, I've got nothing to say. Please don't think, my words are weak and hopeless. Speak God's word to the person and trust that God will do his work through what you speak. So speak about what you know. If you don't know the answer to a question, admit that. And say to them, can I have some time and go and find the answer to the question. Actually bring them along to one of the opportunities where the answer to the question might be given. Friends, our identity is secure in our relationship with the Lord Jesus. And this ought to give us great boldness to speak. For if nothing can take away that secure identity, that ought to give us great boldness in the light of the friendships or relationships that we have. Nothing can take away this secure identity. Even if we our identity will not be taken away. Even if we don't quite get it right, God will still use those words somehow. And even if our friends ridicule us and the relationship is now no longer as significant as it used to be because we have spoken, hear the assurance that our identity in Christ is secure. And secondly, after expecting God to act, we too ought to act. And the first thing that we ought to do rightly is to pray. That's what Paul does at the beginning of his letter, as he does with many of his letters. He starts by giving thanks for the people whom he's ministered to. Our response, our first call to action is to pray. So my question is, who are you praying for? Have you been praying for the three friends as we've been suggesting? If not, start this afternoon. 
Don't wait until the end of festival. You can actually start today. Do it as you're walking down to Redfern Station. Do it tonight when you get home. Tomorrow morning when you get up in the morning. As you come in on the train. As you're sitting out on the lawn because you've got an hour off. Spend some time praying for your friends. Does it have to be three? No, it can be ten. It can be one. The number is not important. It's that we pray for them. Do you have difficulty praying for your friends individually, just personally? Come along to one of the prayer meetings. We're going to run prayer meetings throughout the next three weeks. 8.15 to 8.45 International Student Lounge. Come and pray with others. That may give you the encouragement to be more prayerful for your friends in your own quiet times. Pray that your friend might be saved. Pray that God would do his work in the life of your friend. You cannot save your friend. But the word of God can because of its power. Secondly, after praying, do something. Just do something. Don't let these three weeks go by in this heightened season of opportunity to say, well, I'll just wait until next year. I really need to develop my friendships a little bit more. I want to say to you, in these next three weeks, be bold, take the opportunities and do something. Say something to one of your non-Christian friends, having prayed about it, knowing that your identity is secure, knowing what you know about the mission of God and the power of his word. Speak about Jesus as you are able. You don't need to be a brilliant evangelist. You don't need to speak to a room of a hundred. You don't even need to do it in front of anybody else. It can just be the conversation you have with your friend. Do something by speaking. Share the difference that Jesus makes in your life. Are you able to do that? If not, you know what? You've got this weekend to practice it. Set aside some time and work out. If on Monday someone said, what difference does Jesus make in my life? Try and write down an answer. I really hope and pray that at some point in the next three weeks, you will all be asked that question. And if God answers my prayers, you better be ready. You've been warned. Can you answer that question? Maybe come to the e-summit on Monday and get some training about it. I don't think it's that difficult. Just set aside some time and work out how would I respond when someone says, what difference has Jesus made in your life? Perhaps if you can't think of any good thing that Jesus has done in your life, then friends, can I encourage you to go back and reflect on what Jesus has actually done? He's actually saved you from your sin. He's redeemed you and ransomed you at great price, the death of his son. He's resurrected you. You are now seated in the heavenly realms with him. He's promised eternal life on the return of the Lord Jesus, free from his wrath and judgment. Does that not warm your heart, friends? Spend some time reflecting on these things and preparing to speak about them in a manner that is appropriate for the way in which you speak. Help people understand it by bringing them back to the scriptures and reading it with them. And lastly, consider creating opportunities to do that. Sometimes these opportunities can appear small and insignificant and weak. You and another EU are a couple of friends sitting around having a conversation around some food, playing board games about a particular topic. To the world, it seems a bit crazy, a bit of a waste of time, it's not advancing your career. It's not bettering your CV. 
It's not giving you more marks in your subject, but what's actually happening in that particular moment. As you talk about what it means to be a Christian, the Word of God is doing its powerful work in the hearts and minds of those who would hear. The Word of God that created the entire universe. The Word of God that raises the dead will do its work in the hearts and minds of your friends. And sometimes they will reject it. And that's the work that the Word has done. They would like to keep worshipping idols. And on that last day, God will hold them to account for that response. And that is out of your hands, friends. That's between them and God. But you have done the work of warning them, of speaking the loving truth to them. And in God's kindness, sometimes, some whom you speak to might respond. See the folly of their idol worship and place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. All because you have spoken the words of God. And God has done his work in his word about the Lord Jesus. So I want to say over these next three weeks, do something, speak, create opportunities and speak the saving message of Jesus, the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the great privilege that it is to be able to meet here on campus, to be able to have your word, to be able to read it in our own mother tongue. Father, we pray please for the next three weeks. We ask please, Father, that in your kindness, your word would do its work in our lives continually conforming us to be more and more like Jesus. Father, give us boldness and confidence to speak. Give us the words to say. And we pray, please, Father, that your word would do its work in the hearts and minds of our friends. We ask, please, Father, that in your kindness, you might give us the joy of seeing some become followers of the Lord Jesus in the next three weeks. And we give you thanks for this. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.